Friends, lend me your ears. No, really, I need your ears because I've decided to record the audiobook version of my Rethinking Rest book, and I'm needing some beta listener feedback. And you're welcome just to listen and enjoy the following excerpt from chapter one. But for those who are looking for a little more to do this summer, I also have some interactive endnotes and a short feedback form that will help me improve the quality of the audio moving forward. So will you lend me your ears? Well, this is Greg Hall, and thanks for joining me for this special episode. So you may know that I've written a book, and it's the most anticipated book I have ever written. And that's partly because it's the only book. And also because I've been working on it for about five years. So people can't wait for it to finally come out. And we all have our reasons. And as I said in the intro, I thought it would be a great idea to record the audiobook myself. And I've never done anything like this before, unless you consider producing a podcast, something like that. And while the two are somewhat similar, I have found that recording an audiobook is a different skill set altogether. And to help evaluate what I'm doing, I'd like your help. If you want, you can just listen to the following excerpt from chapter one and be done. But if you'd like to be an official Rethinking Rest audiobook beta listener, swag to follow, it would just take about five more minutes of your time. I've put a link in the show notes that will take you to a simple feedback form at RethinkingRest.com. And if you'd be willing to let me know what you think, it will help me out a lot. I'm also testing out another innovation, interactive electronic endnotes. So have you ever listened to an audiobook that you know has extensive footnotes, but they don't reference them in the audio version of the book? And while some of you are saying, no, <laughs> it's never happened, for those of you that it does bug, yeah, that bugs me too. So here's what I've done. I've uploaded all the endnotes, and those are obviously just the footnotes put all at the end of the book, to a web page. And as you'll hear, I reference them within the audio version. So for instance, you'll hear me say something like EndNote 16. And at that point, you have the ability to pull up the EndNote and actually read it. <laughs> Just like someone who bought the print version of the book. But that's not it. Did I mention that the electronic EndNotes are also interactive? I've gone through the first chapter and I've linked parts of the notes to further information that's available free of charge on something called the World Wide Web. And I'm telling you, you can get lost in these EndNotes. There's even some funny little Easter eggs that I've hidden in there for those that care to hunt around a little bit. And there's a link in the show notes to the electronic EndNotes as well. And while this is likely the only excerpt that I'll include in the podcast feed, there is a place in the feedback form to let me know if you'd like to be notified when I've got another excerpt to listen to. And lastly, if all that wasn't a good enough reason to become an audio beta listener, for every verifiable beta listener feedback form that I receive, I'll be donating $10 to the Stop Soldier Suicide Organization. I'm taking part in their 25-mile swim challenge this month as a part of my Homes and Help initiative that I introduced back in episode 45. 
So spread the word. Let's get as many beta listeners as possible because your feedback is valuable to me and it will also benefit many soldiers who need our support. So I'll give you a second just right now to pull up those electronic endnotes. Give you a second. Just have those on your computer, maybe on your phone. And now let's get listening to the excerpt from Chapter 1, Why Rethink Rest. I don't know if you've noticed, but rest isn't working. I'm not trying to say that the definition itself of rest is not working. I mean, the concept of rest today is broken. Humanity is a big group of tired people, and rest is proving to be more elusive than anyone ever imagined. As with most complex topics, people have come to very different conclusions about rest. Our ideas have become fractured and splintered to the point where most people don't really know what it is or how to get it. We are tired, and we have no idea how rest should interact with our exhaustion. I'll use myself for an example. It seems like I'm tired most of the time. Sometimes I'm physically tired. At other times, I'm mentally or emotionally exhausted, or all of these at once. I used to think all I needed was a vacation. I often romanticized the idea. I was sure the dream vacation would include the ingredients to restore my soul. My wife Lisa and I would decide on a destination, negotiate the time off of work, and buy the tickets. I imagined lying in a hammock under a palm tree on a beach somewhere. And note five. I was sure that's where I would find rest. But Here's how my vacations usually play out. After getting to the destination, it takes me about two days to unhitch from regular life. And about four days in, I start getting the uneasy feeling that I should be getting back home. When it actually is time to return, that travel day returning home is usually exhausting. After we arrive back, unpack, get ready to head off to work, I often feel more tired than before I left. Please tell me, I'm not alone here. That vacation idea of rest can't be the answer we're all looking for. It's so temporary. It's so fleeting. It's so expensive. So where else should we look to sort out the mess of our unrest? Many look to the Bible to fix what is broken. You might be one of those. It's a good place to look because the Bible has much to say about rest. It is first mentioned in the story of the creation in Genesis, and the idea is woven all throughout the Old and New Testaments. With all that the Bible offers regarding rest, I'd like to think that those who regularly read the Bible would have better rest success than those who don't. But I don't think that's true. I think Christ followers are often just as confused as everyone else. Part of the problem is that we've truncated the idea. So what do I mean? Sabbath is the word Bible believers might use if pressed to define rest. But the weekly Sabbath is only a small subcategory of rest. Rest is a robust and fully developed biblical concept. Godly rest is so much more than the weekly Sabbath. Subtitle, We've Made the Sabbath into a Cul-de-Sac Conversation. I think most people are familiar with the idea of a cul-de-sac. It's the type of street that dead ends. It has a place to turn around, but it's not a through road. There's no exit other than going back from where you came. We English speakers borrowed cul-de-sac from the French. 
EndNote 6. It's a term that literally means the bottom of the bag. Like when you put your hand in a bag of potato chips and get to the bottom because you've eaten all of them, you just got cul-de-sac'd. <laughs> and that's not French. I just made that up. Because there's no place to go but back to the top of the bag. That's what Sabbath conversations have become in the church today. They are cul-de-sac conversations. They don't have any outlets. Let me explain what I mean. There are so many different ideas about what Sabbath might be that people rarely get past a simple definition of the term. Most people think Sabbath is really only about the fourth commandment, and note seven. But the fourth commandment is only a small sliver of what the Bible says about Sabbath, and most churchgoers can't even agree what that commandment means. Following are some contemporary views based on interpretations of this commandment. Subtitle, Friday Night to Saturday Night. We know that the seventh-day Sabbath in the Old Testament was a 24-hour period of time beginning at sunset on Friday night. Some people in the church think Christians should return to a Sabbath observance that mimics this Old Testament commandment. Subtitle, Sunday's the Day. Some Bible readers notice in the New Testament that the church would gather on Sunday. These folks would argue that Saturday was the Old Covenant Sabbath, but Christians today are under a New Covenant and that the example is to observe Sabbath on Sunday. Subtitle, Any Day or Part of Any Day. Others think there's nothing special about one day over any other. They think God has given us more flexibility than that in the New Covenant. They would say God doesn't really care what day it is. In fact, a Christian might even be able to piecemeal parts of days together throughout the week to fulfill the Sabbath idea. Subtitle, Christ is the Sabbath. Others look at some of the statements that Jesus made regarding rest and come to the conclusion that the idea of Sabbath is really just something that points to Jesus' ministry. But what does that even mean? While it sounds like a good church answer, this type of view is really hard to pin down and seems to lack boots-on-the-ground practicality. Those are just some of the ways people pursue defining the Sabbath. And note 8. Because of the diversity of opinions, our modern-day conversations have made the Sabbath a theological cul-de-sac. We open up the topic, we think we're heading down Sabbath Street, but we get so caught up on how to even define the term then we find ourselves at the bottom of the bag, with nowhere to go. People get stuck in debates about what day it should be observed or what types of things people should be doing on those days. There's no exit out of those conversations. They don't lead anywhere else. In reality, the topic of biblical rest is a neighborhood of highly interconnected streets. And when one is able to back away from our current cul-de-sac conversation and see the whole neighborhood of rest, that's when they can begin to understand what God means when he offers rest. Subtitle, I don't think that means what you think it means. One of my favorite movies is the 1987 film, The Princess Bride. Many of the actors from that film have gone on to have long and successful careers, and for some of them, this was the film that propelled them forward. It's also a movie that's provided many memorable one-liners, like, people in masks cannot be trusted. <laughs> End note 9. Never get involved in a land war in Asia. 
Marriage is what brings us together today. Once in a wedding I was officiating, I began the ceremony with this marriage line from the movie's wedding scene. It was received with a few isolated snickers in the audience and a big smile from the groom. I enjoy trying to recite quotable movie lines in everyday circumstances just to see who might notice. One character in the movie, Vizzini, a Sicilian man of genius, has a favorite word, inconceivable. He says it quite often. In fact, he says it so often that he ends up using it in ways that are contrary to the word's meaning. At one point in the movie, Vizzini thought he had killed the story's main character by cutting the rope that he was utilizing to scale the cliffs of insanity. When Vizzini sees that his foe hasn't died but is clinging to the sides of the cliff, Vizzini uses his favorite word to describe the situation. Inconceivable! Another character, having heard Vizzini use the word several times throughout the movie, responds, You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. I think some of us have gotten to exactly that point in our conversations about biblical rest. We use the term, but I don't think it means what we think it means. So let's get out of the cul-de-sac, come back to the Bible, and start at the beginning. I propose we build our perspective on the whole of the biblical narrative. We will see how the Bible begins with a creation at rest in Eden under God's rule and authority. We will see how that rest was disrupted and how God pursues his creation to reestablish restful rule. The purpose of this study is to better understand biblical rest and to be able to negotiate the neighborhood well enough to arrive where God desires us all to land in a place of rest. Subtitle, There Remains a Sabbath Rest. We could begin our trip through the biblical neighborhood of rest at creation in Genesis and weave our way all the way through to the end of the story in Revelation. We will make our way back to Genesis soon enough, but I'd like to begin in the book of Hebrews. This is by design. There's a pivotal discussion in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 regarding the New Testament understanding of biblical rest. This discussion is unique because it directly connects the rest a believer experiences to the rest that God experiences. This connection is foundational if we're going to begin to rethink what rest is. So we're not going to look at the whole passage now. We're just going to begin using it as a base camp from which to start our journey. There's a specific passage in Hebrews 4 that will launch us back to the beginning of the story in Genesis. Is Sabbath rest really a concept on which modern believers need to focus? Let's consider what the author of Hebrews has to say. For if Joshua, end note 10, had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Hebrews 4, 8-11 This passage mentions the Old Testament character of Joshua. Joshua was Moses' right-hand man. Moses led Israel out of Egypt, received the Ten Commandments, and led the people for a generation in the wilderness. Then Joshua went on to lead the Israelites into the land that God had promised to Israel's ancestor, Abraham. The Promised Land, 
to which Joshua led the conquest, is often referred to as a place of rest. Hebrews 4.8 suggests that if Joshua had given the Israelites true rest through the conquest of the Promised Land, he, God, would not have spoken of another day after the conquest, when the concept of rest was revisited. There's something important to notice here. In maybe the most important conversation about biblical rest in the whole of the New Testament, we're talking about Joshua. But who are we not talking about? Notice the absence of Moses in this discussion. Moses is the character most closely associated with the Old Testament rules about how to observe the weekly Sabbath day. Yet the author of Hebrews doesn't go back and suggest that the fourth commandment was the defining path to Sabbath rest. In fact, the author doesn't mention any part of the Mosaic law in his argument. But that's where our cul-de-sac conversations are on this topic in church culture today. We go to the fourth commandment and get stuck there. Instead, this Hebrews discussion talks about how Joshua wasn't able to offer the Israelites true rest. If the fourth commandment had been the end-all, it seems like we'd be reading about that here in Hebrews. But that's not where the argument takes us. Hebrews 4.9 says, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's important for modern readers to understand that we're not done with this topic yet. Or maybe better to say, God's not done with this topic. Because of our Sabbath confusion in the church, many people, including many in the next generation of church leaders, have completely abandoned the idea of Sabbath. But God's not done with it. There is something about Sabbath rest with which God expects believers to stay engaged. And maybe Sabbath doesn't mean what we think it means. The next verse we need to look at is Hebrews 4.10. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. And it's important to pay attention to the capital letters in this verse. They referred to God. So here's my own explanatory translation of what's going on. This passage is saying, For the one, talking about the believer in Christ, who has entered his rest, that's God's rest, has himself, the believer has, also rested from his works, the believer's own works, as God did from his, from God's work. It's a bit of a confusing statement, to be sure. To what is this even referring? When was it that God was working and then rested from his work? Well, that's talking about the creation account in Genesis 1-1 to 2-3. This Hebrews passage is linking us back to Genesis. But notice where it's not sending us. It's not sending us back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. The answer isn't found there. The definition of rest existed well before the exodus from Egypt and before the Mosaic Law was ever written down. The author of Hebrews is suggesting that there's something unique about the Genesis creation account that holds the key to our understanding of rest. Then, in Hebrews 4.11, the author encourages us to be diligent to enter that rest. Hebrews was written to believers after the earthly ministry of Jesus, and it encourages them to be diligent to experience the rest that God has to offer. It's a warning to New Testament folks saying, 
Don't jump ship on Sabbath rest. To borrow modern language, it's time to lean in on rest and examine it more fully. For now, we're going to let this passage lead us back to the beginning of the biblical story and begin to ask some more important questions about rest. What is it about God's rest that sends us back to the beginning? What does it even mean when it says that God rested? How is God's rest defined? As we've seen, Hebrews 4, 8-11 through 11 links the two types of rest, God's rest and a believer's rest, together and suggests they are similar. So if we can figure out how God rested, then we will be one step closer to finding out what kind of rest believers are called to today. Hey, this is Greg again, outside of audiobook land, and that's the end of the excerpt. And I'd really appreciate it if you'd find your way to the feedback form at RethinkingRest.com and let me know your thoughts. Again, thanks for listening. And please tell all your friends, especially the ones who like audiobooks, how they can become a Rethinking Rest audio beta listener.